and welcome to Eureka Nerd 2018. I'm Will Davis, saving the world with my thoughts and actions. And I'm Leah Richards, having a biscuit. Those phrases don't just apply to how we spent our Christmas break, but also to the science that we're going to be covering. Speaking of, how was your Christmas? It's festive. Got any good presents? Yeah, yeah. You? It's pretty good. Got books. Mm-hmm. Less socks than I was expecting, but still a good pair. Socks are important. You know what else is important? Sugar. Sugar? Got some in my tea right now. You've not got any in yours because it's herbal and that would be weird. But sugar is a key part of everyone's Christmas experience. I think it's a key part of everyone's day-to-day life. It's very difficult to get away from. Which is kind of the problem, unfortunately. Lots of sugar all of the time. Really not the best for you. And it has been suggested more and more often recently that sugar is the worst nutrient for our health. It's the least helpful. The only thing it does is give you energy that you can immediately access. There's no other value to it. And it may be doing more harm than good. This probably isn't a new idea for anyone. The idea that having lots of sugar in your diet isn't good for you. It's been linked to lots of diseases like cancer and diabetes and all the obesity-related diseases that come with it. And apparently, this needed restating in the British Medical Journal, BMJ for short, as of January 3rd, 2018, they've answered the question, could sugar be responsible for the obesity and diabetes epidemics? Yes, correct. And the point that's being made is that it's more than just the bare calorific value of sugar, it's that it's The suggestion is that it's contributing more than, say, the same amount of calories from a potato to insulin resistance or potential damage that being overweight can do. And I'm not going to argue with any of that. I just, like, I thought we got there some time ago that, yes, type 2 diabetes can be directly driven by a high sugar diet, which then leads to insulin resistance in the body, which then leads to diabetes. Like, that's, that news is older than me. It should be a lot older than January 3rd, 2018. I mean, I did read something about one of the reasons sugar hasn't been being demonised for very long. is something to do with the sugar lobby being more powerful than the fat lobby, so they... Shift the blame onto, like, cholesterol. Good cholesterol, bad... What about eggs? Has anyone investigated eggs? Meanwhile, you're literally sitting on a mountain of sugar. All that high fructose corn syrup. A lot of that. And... Yeah, it drives disease. Cancer thrives on high-sugar diets because it is liquid energy circulating around your body. There's no metabolism required to break it down into useful compounds. It just goes. So it's not good for you in excess. Like, a lot of things aren't good for you in excess, but also sugar is one of the things that it's really easy to go into excess for. Unfortunately, as a species, we really, really love sugary stuff, really love sweet things. As a society and a scientific community, we don't really know for sure if artificial sweeteners are any better for us. There's, It seems like every study that comes out, it flip-flops on whether it's a better option. I mean, how are we supposed to wean ourselves off it? It's in everything. It's often added to everything to make it more moreish, because, like you say, your body craves sugar because it is raw fuel. And while we were demonising fat, it was packed into low-fat options to help pack them out. Mm, Give them more flavour, give them more commercial buying power, really. And this is one of those things where I think as a society we're just going to have to vote with our wallets and 
tried to abstain where we can and as much as is possible in lots of ways for our health. Because they estimate that the impact of obesity and diabetes on the US healthcare system at about $1 billion a day, at £740 million or €850 million. Euro. Is that just the raw cost of treating people? You know, in the in the sense that it would cost the NHS the same, or is that the cost to the people being treated? America does make that more confusing than it has. Yeah, that's not clarified here, but I'm going to assume that someone's got to pay, and it could not be the people of the planet if we make some healthy choices. Like that's that's a common New Year's resolution: make healthier choices. I'm still going to carry on eating biscuits, though. I'm I'm going to be honest. My willpower and my desire for health are not good enough to stop me eating biscuits. (laughs) Happy New Year's. Here's some fatalism. You just really like biscuits. Well, do you also like a drink every now and again? I do like a drink. I especially like sugary drinks. I've got a can of something in the fridge at the moment. It's a toffee apple flavoured vodka fizzy drink it looks terrible i'm gonna love it you genuinely drink like a teenage girl and it's hilarious to me but did you know that frequent consumption of alcohol is associated with increased risk of dying from cardiovascular disease that is something that's been brought up yeah like alcohol is a health risk it's one of those uh items that's often touted as if they invented it today it would be banned But unfortunately, it is also a natural biological process of yeasts, and people like it. Every single human society has got a habit of getting itself off its face on something, so... Dolphins do it. Birds do it. Bees do it. I'm sure if we were to get the funding, we could train fleas to do it. The point is that the risk of you dying of cardiovascular disease because of your alcohol consumption, varies depending on your socio-economic status. You mean it's unhealthy to be poor? That's exactly what I mean. Hold the presses! Wealthier people tend to consume more alcohol overall than poorer people, presumably because they can afford to. However, the poorer people, even though they're drinking less alcohol, are more likely to die of alcohol-related diseases particularly heart disease. It's almost like it's part and parcel with numerous other health concerns that affect poor people disproportionately. Yeah, they haven't in this press release actually gone into what they think the reasons for this are, but I would suspect that a considerable chunk of it is that the poorer you are, the more likely you are to have poor health overall because you're under greater stress for a wide range of reasons, including money worries, working harder, more physical jobs, you know, not necessarily being able to keep the heat in your house, possibly missing out on nutrition if you're going that short on cash. Not to mention the barriers to healthcare, like often not being able to either afford a private health company, if this is happening in places where private health companies are the only way forwards. Sorry, America, you're stuck with that one. Or if you're not able to take the day off work to go to the doctor to complain about the health issues that are upon your body because of the system that you work within. Guys, it sucks to be poor. It super sucks to be poor. It it just makes life a lot harder. And you know how people are likely to cope with these stresses? It's a great big circle of regret. The authors are quoted in the press release as saying it's unclear if the difference in risk reflects 
differential confounding of alcohol consumption with health protective or damaging exposures or differing effects of alcohol on health across socioeconomic groups. The heterogeneity between groups in the population needs to be assessed when making population recommendations regarding alcohol consumption. For example, if you've used a sample of wealthier participants in a study of the effects of alcohol on their health, you might say that a higher typical weekly consumption is acceptable than if you'd based it on a poorer group. I think probably the better solution is to help people not be so desperately poor all the time but i guess i'm just one of those pinky lefty softies because i don't think people should have to suffer look at you wanting people to be alive and be happy how dare i dry january is a communist conspiracy so that's another new year's resolution firmly skewered don't give up drinking it might be all you've got that's probably not a very cheerful way of putting it's it it's not a very cheerful way of putting it have a drink if you want to. I'm gonna die in the end, whatever. More fatalism. Yeah, that works. Unless you're an alcoholic and have given up drinking, in which case, carry on with that. That's probably a good choice. I think we can put the Eureka Nerd stamp of approval on that. <laughs> Don't drink more if you're an alcoholic. <laughs> drink as much as is personally appropriate. From zero to some drinks. And our next story comes with the Eureka Nerd stamp of approval as well. You can save the world. I know I've talked about it before, but human-driven climate change can be affected by human activity to limit climate change. This is a model using climate science and social psychology looking at how human behaviour evolves in response to extreme climate events. Essentially, we've got a bit of a feedback loop. If you think back to looking at population dynamics in GCSE science... And there was a very nice graph of population numbers of Arctic lynx and snowshoe hares. And the lines followed one another when there was a population boom in lynx, hare numbers crashed. And then because the hare numbers had dropped, there couldn't be so many lynx around. So the hare numbers boomed again, leading to a boom in lynx numbers and a feedback loop. Rising and falling wave. We're potentially looking at a similar thing with a climate change and extreme climate events. So you've seen on the news that there's, or you've experienced, huge flooding because of unseasonably high rainfall in, for example, summer 2007. Or the last six months, like hurricanes out the wazoo towards the end of 2017. So you think, right, okay, we're going to do something about it, and this is going to have much more effect if you're a policymaker or or in charge of something major for a big business. So, say a CEO of Starbucks, and you look at this weather, and you go, mm, "What we're going to do is we're going to start we're going to start running all of our delivery trucks on biofuels. And they're all going to be running off rendered down vegetable fat." Which, as Starbucks, they are going to be producing. They've got a lot of lorries delivering stuff to stores, to shops when they've got their sort of concessions, that sort of thing. So that's going to make an impact. Quite a big impact for something like Starbucks. That might make enough of an impact to have fewer extreme climate events. So you might go, oh, well, we're all right. And it looks like 
maybe oil is a bit cheaper at the moment. So you switch back. Which then contributes to human-driven climate change. We're looking at this on a sort of microcosm level with just one example, but if lots of people simultaneously are looking at this and go, oh, I'm going to install some solar panels on my house. We all pitch in together and save the world, then the world will be saved. And we think, okay, we can relax and start, I don't know, driving Humvees to the supermarket to buy a bunch of individually wrapped carrots or something. Now, the model did find that longer term, less easily reversed behavioural changes, such as increasing the amount of insulation on your home, driving a hybrid car, putting solar panels on your roof, have far more impact in mitigating greenhouse gas emissions versus short-term adjustments like turning your thermostat down by a degree and wearing a cardigan indoors or resolving to not drive anywhere that it'll take you less than 20 minutes to walk. Well, maybe we can take this model and start applying it to more situations. Like instead of just one company making a change, let's expand it to whole regions, communities working together to say, oh, if everyone were to pitch in a small amount of money so everyone could get solar panels. But, you know, we will get a bigger impact if big business and governments take the action rather than individual human beings. Oh, yeah, like if they did anything, that would be a start. As we've said many times, if you are a billionaire who wants to save the world, you really, you have the power, you have the money. You won't be as rich at the end of it, but you will be the person who saved the world. So get on it. There's a New Year's resolution for everyone. Save the world and let those who can have the greatest impact be the first to do it. If you personally want to take steps, nag the people who have the power to make the big changes. And if you out there listening to this, like us, are huge nerds, then you might have picked up on some big changes coming your way from the internet. Huge nerds, or, you know, even just reading some news once in a while. This is, it's gained a lot of mainstream traction now. The idea of blockchains, the driving force behind cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, which has seen a huge boom in the last couple of years. If you haven't heard the word Bitcoin everywhere over the last few weeks and months, You've not been paying attention, I would suggest. Do you want to hear my joke about Bitcoin? Yeah, sure. Am I going to laugh? Okay, so a little boy asks for a Bitcoin for Christmas. And his dad looks at him and says, £15,000? What do you want £13,000 for? Do you have any idea what you can buy with £16,000? I'm not giving a child like you £12,000. Economics. Someone out there might have had a chortle. If you've had a sensible chortle then please let us know. Send a message to eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. Put economics jokes in the subject line, and then we can tell <laughs> your economics jokes. We've got a laugh there. Economics jokes alone has got a laugh. I just like the idea of someone emailing us and going, here's an economics joke. And just, like, one word. Capitalism. <laughs> yeah, that's the joke. Ethical capitalism. Oh boy, that's even funnier. Anyway. Anyway. The blockchain. The idea that cryptocurrencies are based on is that everyone agrees that they have changed hands, that they have a permanent record attached to them, that if you say, oh, I'll give you a unit of this cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Dogecoin, Ethereum, whatever, 
you give it to someone, and someone says, okay, I confirm that I have got this, and everyone around them says, we confirm this transaction has happened, it's gone from here to here, and then everyone expects this wizard money to make them cash. But the permanent record of who has what going where is the blockchain. It's basically a digital permanent record of who has seen what, who has changed what. Like, if you're doing tracking comments on a Word document, which you can send back and forth with other people, you can all see who's done what. It's like, in a Google document or a Google file, you can see who has accessed what. A blockchain is a digital Sharpie marker to put your signature on it and say, either I own this, I have seen this. That seems to be what it is, if you can explain the blockchain to us any better than that, and... You can get in contact at eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at eurekanerdcast as well. But yeah, that seems to be the idea. And the European Commission Joint Research Centre would like to suggest making use of the blockchain to really make the most of the education system. I don't know if you've ever experienced the stress of trying to find a certificate for a particular qualification you've got to provide it to an employer or to uh, another educational institution if you're trying to take a course with them and they're like, we need the piece of paper that says you've got a B grade in GCSE maths from 2006, get on it. At which point I call my mum, but do I have it? Do I help? I, on the other hand, know where all of mine are, but it would take me a little bit of time to find it because I've just got I've just got so many bits of paper. So why not have a digital permanent record so then you don't have to dig through bedside cabinets and bookshelves looking for that one Edexcel spreadsheet from whenever that you got your GCSEs, A-levels, first aid, second class qualifications, whatever. If you can do it digitally and everyone can agree that this is the only existing permanent record of them, then you can just send out access to this file and everyone can sign off on it and I think that's the blockchain in education So not only do you not have to dig through your paperwork to find the piece of paper, but if the piece of paper has been destroyed in a fire or if you're a refugee from a war as is the experience of many people who are just sort of about at the moment because we keep having wars you can, when you get away from it, restart your life without having to send back to institutions that might not even exist anymore for evidence that you have a qualification. And the blockchain, which to me sounds like a kung fu weapon where you've got a, a long chain and then a big brick on the end and you use it to hit people in the head with, it has captured a lot of investor speculation, a lot of attention from people with a lot of money who don't seem to know what they're doing with it. There was a juice company which changed its name to, I think, Blockchain Juices and doubled their value overnight. I would like to really make it clear to everybody that this is what we call a bubble. Do some reading on the South Sea bubble, the dot-com bubble. That thing with the tulips in the Netherlands, I can't remember what they call it exactly, but tulip bulbs were changing hands for as much money as houses. And then the bottom fell out of the market and everyone lost their shirts. It was chaos. So if anyone out there can explain the blockchain to us and convince us that it's not a bubble, we would welcome that. If someone would like to talk to us about how they could see the blockchain being used in other fields beyond education and do something cool with a digital permanent record beyond just it being a digital permanent record, then sure, tell us about that too. If you're here because you saw that we had the word blockchain in our podcast title and episode notes and have just piled in searching for something to do with the blockchain because you have no idea and no one else really does. Then on the one hand, haha, got you. 
On the other hand, welcome to the party, pal. Because <laughs> we don't know either. Oh, can you imagine the blockchain for homework, though? Like if you're doing an online assessment and you said, oh, no, I submitted it, but then there was an error and your professor can turn around and say, oh, no, I've had a look at the blockchain. You didn't log into the password portal at all. I would literally hate it if every single thing in one's education was recorded that way because I don't, I don't need the entire world knowing about how little homework I did in school. I should probably cut this bit out of the episode then. Too late now. No, I mean, just saying I didn't do a lot isn't the same as saying exactly how little I did, so... Well, let's leave the sense of mystery around that <laughs> and move on to our next story. As of the 3rd of January in Gender Stuff, the headline, Dancing Backwards in High Heels. You know, like Ginger Rogers did. What has this got to do with science and education, you might wonder? Well... According to a new study published in the journal Sex Roles, shows that female professors have to deal with more requests from students asking for special favours like grade increases and opportunity to redo assignments than their male colleagues. And that the students are more likely to react badly when turned down for those favours than they would with a male colleague. It's almost like men are conditioned in society to expect things of women which they won't get and then be angry about. The worst part being that this is a so deeply sort of ingrained and un, I think unconsidered aspect that actually there doesn't seem to be any variation in the likelihood of students asking for favours based on the student's gender, based on the student's general attitude to women. It's just a blanket thing. That just female professors are seen as softer marks than male professors are. And lead investigator in this... Amani El Alayli from the Eastern Washington University says that the research provides more information about how students treat female professors, how they react to professors standing their ground, and what kind of students are particularly likely to treat female professors differently from male professors. Bullet points being high academic entitlement as a marker for irritation or disappointment when their requests are denied. Also more likely to conclude that if their request was denied, it's because the professor disliked them on a personal level. So the privileged sensitivity is a high marker for distress when your female professor doesn't give you the kind of indulgence that you're looking for. Indeed, they're even more likely to carry on pushing for favours after female professors have told them they're not getting them. Which all contributes to higher rates of burnout, having to take time away from career-enhancing activities that may affect female professors' career advancements, causing them to get less favourable course evaluations or even filing complaints. And I'm going to put a link in the episode notes to go alongside this one, which I feel does kind of nudge up against a lot of these expectations beyond just the fragility of the high academic entitlement group identified in this study of Dunning-Kruger syndrome, a fascinating little chunk of psychology where you think you are right or the best at something despite all evidence to the contrary. You know those lovely people who've got buckets of unearned confidence and who are actually terrible at stuff, but even when you say, no, honestly, you're super bad at this, they go, no, I'm not. I'm sure there's a lot of this rattling around students who would approach a female professor and ask to boost up their grades, despite the fact that, guy, just, like, take the hint. In fact, read an account of Professor Kruger, 
talking about this in one of his classes and one of the students came up afterwards and said hi on the test about dunning-kruger syndrome you gave me a really low grade and i just wanted to give you the chance to adjust that now before like i took this to tribunal or something because i know i did really well on that test psychologically fascinating but also personally disappointing anyway on to our last story for this episode something which shouldn't be your new year's resolution for the year Randomness and evil. This press release from Cornell University. When they're talking about evil, it's more actually disease. Although they have mentioned that other evil, in inverted commas, may also follow similar patterns. So this is looking into the incubation periods of various different diseases. You're exposed to the pathogen, and then there may be an incubation period before symptoms become apparent. The example they've used is a church dinner in California a hundred years ago that gave dozens of people typhoid fever. The incubation times of people attending this party exposed to the infectious pathogen, they varied. As you might expect, people wouldn't get sick as fast as others. Some people might be more vulnerable, some people might be more hardy and stand up to infection for a longer time, despite being exposed all at the same period. But actually plotting out the distribution of times for that they would succumb and like develop symptoms no one had really put that down to paper some people just thought well i know it takes longer for other people than for the most vulnerable i guess but california medical examiner looked at the specific case of this church dinner in 1914 in hanford california 93 people were exposed to typhoid fever after eating contaminated spaghetti. Incubation periods for these 93 people ranged from 3 days to 29. The majority of people were showing symptoms after 6 days. So then developing symptoms a whole 3 weeks later, that's that's significant. It's very significant. The authors Steve Strogatz and Bertrand Atino Luffler modelled the progression of a number of diseases, including bacterial infections, cancer cells, and found that they tend to show right-skewed distribution, where most people develop symptoms quickly. And whilst this data distribution did seem like there was a great element of randomness in it, they found that if they plotted that same data based on its logarithm rather than just the actual time to disease progression, then everything levelled out to make a lot more sense, that they could plot the distribution of how many people would be developing their symptoms, and then what would be the kind of the maximal time that you might anticipate someone developing symptoms later then. But also, as Drogatz suggests, that while you may not want to generalise too broadly, the theory holds up to not only disease proliferation, but other examples of something that could be considered contagious, like a computer virus, or even economic problems like banks going under. Makes me think of the Warcraft disease, where there was a high-level raid dungeon where people could only get in if they were of a a very high level, and the boss there would give them a damage over time debuff, a little dot on them, which would cause damage which they could carry out of the dungeon with them. Yeah, it was a brand new endgame content at the time, and the final boss inflicted you with this disease, and it would spread from player to player within the instance, but it was bugged, so you could carry the disease out. And if a player that drops out of the instance into the middle of a capital city, where there's lots of people on their 
lower leveled characters hanging about trying to level up or trying to get from one place to another then the disease which they can tolerate wipes out lower leveled characters and i would recommend actually looking it up and and reading about it if you've not heard about it before there was a a number of epidemiologists realized that this mapped quite closely to how people respond to real life epidemics Using the Strogatz and Lerfler model, we can try and analyse the level distribution of Warcraft players. There'd be <laughs> lots and lots of low-level players who would die instantly, and all of the high-level players who can take the hit and maybe heal in time that it won't do them that much damage. They would be very right distributed. It's not how long it takes to kill you, it's how long it takes to be obvious that you're ill. Oh, being dead is a very obvious symptom. <laughs> And that's about all we've got time for on our first episode of 2018. A few more studies just to see you on your way. A few little thinkers to take away with you before we come back in about two weeks' time. Have you ever thought climate change? Do you think it might affect the whole planet? Specifically, is Arctic warming influencing the UK's extreme weather? Hmm, I wonder. Could global warming affecting the Arctic bring extreme weather to the UK? Yes, it does. It's the jet stream. That headline from the University of Lincoln is backed up from a week later from the University of Arizona, who have concluded that jet streams changes since the 1960s are linked to more extreme weather in the whole of Europe. So it's almost like the climate is changing. Dun, dun, dun. And on a similarly dramatic note... Does watching CSI make criminals better at avoiding being caught for their crime? No. Well, the psychological study finds no link in exposure to popular forensic science dramas and ability to conceal a crime. They did this by asking prisoners... Yeah, people who've already been convicted. So there might be hundreds of people out there who've never been caught who really did get good at hiding because they watched lots of CSI. There's some research for the Johannes Gutenberg University Minds to follow up with at some point in the future. But until they get around to solving all of those Miami murders, that's all from us. But if you do want to drop us a line, at EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, at EurekaNerdcast, and tell us what was in your stocking this year, and we can tell you all about how Santa did it using quantum. I can only assume Santa does quantum. Does Santa do the blockchain, maybe, to keep his naughty and nice lists? Oh yeah, that sounds legit. Santa and the blockchain. It's going to be a Christmas fable they'll tell for years to come fit in with all those horrible elf in the shelf things oh like the elf cctv that you can get as well that was if you want to tell us all about your christmas nightmares then you can send those to eureka nerdcast at gmail.com that's eureka nerdcast at gmail.com don't leave them in an itunes like leave an itunes review but don't tell us about your christmas nightmares in an itunes review it's, it's not the not place for it not the time not the place but until next time that's goodbye from me and goodbye from me